Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Turfgrass Epistemology. We, we, we are on a constant journey to find out how we know what we know about turfgrass science. I'm Travis Shaddix. Thank you for coming tonight. I see we have Gray Fox, Jeremy Bosch, Lush Lawns, Looney, Brady419, Brady The Lawn Sot. We have a lot of people in chat already tonight. We have Ohio, Louisville, Massachusetts, I think Japan. Who else is in here tonight already? So we got a we got an eclectic group already here tonight. I'm very excited about tonight. I've been think, I've been excited about this for like a week and a half straight. My guest tonight is um, is is going to help me straighten out my my mindset on thatch. <laughs> He's going to help educate me on thatch. He uh, my guest tonight got his a bachelor's degree from the University of Arkansas in 1975. He got a, a master's degree in botany from Texas Tech in 1977. So when he was doing a lot of, you know, grad school work, I was in diapers. Okay, that's how, that's how that's the the gap between our levels of knowledge. <laughs> he got a PhD in plant breeding from the University of Illinois in 1984, and I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he was a faculty member there at the University of Illinois for for a brief period. After that, he he was actually doing. Uh, work with soybeans for a long time and, and canola if I'm not mistaken he'll correct me when he comes on if I'm wrong about that and then he went to turf grass and he's been at Georgia for two or three decades if I'm not mistaken so my guest tonight is Dr. Paul Raymer how are you Dr. Raymer I'm doing great Travis thanks for having me on um thank you for coming on I uh told my my audience a week or two ago I was like I think he he's going to be able to come on this this uh legend of the turf grass industry so i was i was so excited then when you said you, you thought you were able you're going to be able to come on tonight uh, am i right that you were in soybeans and canola for several years before coming into turf grass yeah i've had several careers in one job so <laughs> um i joined um at, at the university of illinois i i was faculty but i was a staff member for seven years during my phd program Okay. So I, I went there after my master's degree from tech and took on a job as um, coordinating the soybean variety test as an agronomist. And um, after about a year, the back of my hurting from the tension of graduate school, and I decided, eh, I might as well go ahead and get a PhD while I'm here. And so I started a PhD program and Stayed on as a full-time staff member, uh, worked for a USDA breeder of grain, uh, a guy named Dick Bernard, who at the time had about 80% of the soybeans grown in the Midwest were his varieties. So oh, wow. I worked with him for several years and, um, and managed to get a PhD, uh, primarily on looking at genetics and how they could be manipulated to uh, potential for double crop soybeans Midwest. So mm. I took a job here at the University of Georgia in 1984, coordinating variety test programs. So that was kind of my first uh, professional career. Okay. And um, I worked in that and from the resources that I had available with variety testing and the equipment, uh, my exposure to field research, et cetera, I kind of evolved into the alternative crop scientist too. And that's where my interest in canola came in, uh, in the late eighties, uh, canola was granted, uh, grass status, which means it was generally regarded as safe 
actually allowed to use canola oil as a food ingredient in U.S. manufacturing. Before that, okay. we were forbidden using canola oil. Uh, hmm. It's a good, strong soybean lobby there. Uh, okay. It's not offensive to anyone, but I'm a soybean guy at heart. So, <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, so um, uh, I worked on canola, pulled together a, a great team of scientists to explore, just like many other regions and universities were looking to see if they could grow canola in their region since it was a new crop. Mm. But the only region that had any experience was the Pacific Northwest. Mm. And so worked really closely with a lot of guys around the country and um, pulled together a great team of um, across a lot of disciplines at UGA. And we all worked together to solve and answer the questions that we had to answer. So we, we worked on that about 15 years. And I found out how hard it is to introduce a new crop. <laughs> okay. It's, it's a lot like uh, trying to introduce a new technology or a new innovation, whatever. Mm. Uh, it's uh, it's you know it's one thing that it can work. It's another thing to make it work commercially. So. Yeah, yeah. There's a whole business side to that that oftentimes I mean we need specialists to come in and help us with those those components. If you're not familiar with that, and then yeah. you ended up going to George and working in the. Tar- I see. I when I hear the name Paul Raymer. I right or wrong, I, I I'm thinking turf breeding. Yeah, that's sort of how yeah. I've always connected you with well, with, with I, the breeding I, I programs kind of, in Georgia. Um, to be honest with you and uh, with your audience, uh, the the problem that I encountered after about ten or twelve years of working on canola mm-hmm. and alternative crops, and we had some we had some great successes, but we had a lot of train wrecks too. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, disease freezes, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we'd get, uh, growers interested in growing the crop and, and then something would go wrong. Mm-hmm. Market, um, would pull out and all of a sudden farmers had no place to go with their crop. We were shipping it to Canada. So there are all, it was constant, uh, problems and, uh, headache We're making progress. Uh, and then we were working with a biotech company out of California called Calgene. And Calgene was some notoriety because they were one of the first agricultural biotech companies. They were the to introduce a GMO uh, crop, and that was Flavor Saver Tomato. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the next crop they went to was canola because it was very easy to manipulate uh, oh. genetically. And so they started looking at modified fatty acid value. And, and we jumped on that because we needed higher at the time, soybeans were about three fifty a bushel and, um, and canola was priced about 80% below soybeans or not, hmm. no, 80% of soybeans. Uh, hmm. so, uh, so prices were really low and we couldn't really convince anyone to grow it, um, at, at those prices. So we were looking for any kind of advantage we could get with higher value markets. So, we actually in Georgia, we actually planted the first GMO oil seed in the United States, oh. um, and it wasn't soybean. <laughs> okay, uh, that's that's what surprises most people. But uh, mm. that was a that was a great ride. But to be honest with you, after about ten or fifteen years of uh, what the promise could be and uh, what the potential was, I I grew tired of it. And mm. it's like, I, I need to do something else for a while. I'm tired of trying to stand up and convince people of what things could happen. Um, yeah. And so um, about that time, our turf grass breeder um, 
left, uh, retired uh, a little bit early for him uh, unexpectedly. And there was an opportunity to move into turf grass. And um, it meant a lot less travel and um, a new opportunity, a new area to study and learn more about. And every, every job I've had, I've really enjoyed that aspect of it. Okay. Uh, the aspect of learning and going through all the literature and the newness of it and, and looking for the problems and trying to figure out where we could, um, where the, what the low hanging fruit is, we could add innovation and um, just uh, make a difference. Yeah. So I've, I've always enjoyed that opportunity to change. Even though I've been at the university, I, you were saying two or three decades, I've actually been at the University of Georgia in June of uh, 24, I will have been 40 years uh, at the <laughs> University of Georgia. So, but I've wow, I've had about three careers. Okay, um, I was actually a soybean extension specialist for about three or four years. Okay, uh, the turf breeding too. So, I'm um, breeder trained, and I'm a turf grass breeder now. Yeah, uh, working in turf grass breeding since 2003. Okay. Um, but I still continue to have a strong interest in management um, and in, um, in various aspects of management. And that's, that's where I tend to do a lot of research. More, I'm more of a management person than I am a geneticist, really. Uh, okay. So I do a lot of breeding, but um, um, it's focused on our development. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that because whenever I'm around, like, well, I'm not around them anymore, but when I'm around like Quisenberry or, or any of the geneticists or any of the breeders, I right. should say, and they start talking ploidisms and triploidism, they, I just zone out. <laughs> I'm like, I have no yeah. idea what you're talking about. Yeah. So I quickly realized the level of my ignorance real quick when they're, they're just talking to them like, it's just normal language. I'm like, man, you guys are far beyond my ability to, to yeah. understand. <laughs> so, um, well, one reason why you're here tonight, the main reason why you're here tonight is to help me understand thatch. And so when you, when you, when I started reading these papers, kind of give you a brief history of the, the topics that we've been going over is, you know, the, the holy, there's several holy grails in turf grass, right? To be able to kill Bermuda grass is one, you know, to be able to grow <laughs> Bermuda grass. <laughs> Good. Well, hopefully you can help us out and to be yeah. able to grow really any warm season grass in the shade with no problems is maybe another Holy grail, but you know, down the chain somewhere is this, this idea of being able to control thatch without any sort of mechanical damage or, you know, cultivation of the turf to, or at least be able to manage it or maybe not control it fully, but manage it a little bit better without any sort of destructive process. And so you know, this has been sort of investigated since the sixties, right? They've been, they use some sugars and they use some various things and nothing really in the literature really st struck home much. But then in the eighties, there were a couple of papers that came out looking at white root fun, right? White rot fungi. I, if I'm going to mispronounce that probably 10 times a night. So don't, I can't pronounce that, that white rot, but anyway, you know, Sartain's paper came out in the eighties where he was actually inoculating turf grass with white rot fungi and saw some benefit to that. And mm -hmm. I don't know if they really knew what it was about the fungi that was doing it, but there was something going on with the white rot fungi that was, what was helping, you know, at least reduce the growth of that. And then there were some hit and misses in the literature in the nineties. And so forth. there was a couple pieces of literature here and there that showed some occasional benefits, but then 
your team started coming out with these papers with Sue Deep and yourself and um, um, there's two or three other people on these papers. And it seemed pretty consistent in your papers that this enzyme from white rot fungi was showing a beneficial response in the thatch. And that was what? 2000, when was that first paper? Then the Hort Science, 2000. Probably 12, 11. 12, something like yeah, something like that. Probably 12. And so, you know, to this, I, I guess where I'm going with this, Paul, is this idea of being able to control thatch without any sort of mechanical, you know, damage to the turf sort of seemed to be a, a, a fleeting idea. It just never really seemed to get a hold of any, no one could ever really figure it out. But it seems like there's something to what you guys have been doing in the last 10 or 12 years, but these papers showing fairly consistent response to it. So that's the reason I wanted you to come on right. so that I, so that I don't screw anything up. Basically, I don't, I don't want to misrepresent your work and um, I want to make sure that I'm communicating this and, and not overreaching the results, I guess, is my concern is I'm not promising something or I'm not saying something that the results don't, don't support. So with that, the the paper that I wanted to go over with you tonight is is your um, let's see this was in Agronomy Journal is that right yeah Agronomy yeah, Journal cool. in 2013 so to the audience listening not watching the title of this paper is efficacy of fungal lacase to facilitate bio dethatching in Bermuda and zoysia grass so I might be wrong on this but this is either the second or third paper in this sort of family of papers that you all have published over the last decade or so one was being the greenhouse and then you moved it out into the field this is one of the first papers or that i can remember where you went out into the field do you want to walk us through the the concept of the study or the idea behind it or you know how it came about and what you did here paul uh sure um i guess um um, you had kind of indicated uh, how this project came up. Um, there, we actually interviewed a, um, a chemist, uh, a fact, a water chemist. We were interviewing a position for a position at the Griffin campus of the University of Georgia, a water chemist. Okay. And um, a guy named Jack Wong um, interviewed for that job, and he was working with Lycase uh, in his work. He was an um, environmental chemist. He was trained as an engineer at, um, in China and then had a degree in chemical engineering from the University of Michigan. So a little bit different mindset to an agriculture and a little bit different looking at things. And um, so when he interviewed for the job, uh, Dr. Caro, uh, Bob Caro, did a he had a very long career in turf grass science as a turf grass physiologist. Most of his work was done in the field and he had spent a lot of time working on thatch and thatch management. Um, and so when Jack started talking about lycase and it's it, the, the lights went off in Bob's head that, Hey, I wonder if we can use this as a means to degrade lignin because Bob had, uh, had pretty much concluded that the biggest problem, the rate limiting decomposition was due to lignin. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's where that concept was born. I remember uh, Bob and Jack coming into my office after Jack was in, uh, pitching this idea to me and wanted me to get involved for uh, to do the field aspects of this. 
and to help um, recruit, well, with the graduate student, uh, Sudeep, that was ultimately hired in this. So, uh, and I, I remember, we'll come back to this in a minute, but I'll, uh, I remember posing the idea that the problem with introducing white rot fungi directly into the, uh, say, a golf green was we were applying fungicides. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were, you know, and just the ability to maintain that fungal population was the problem. And yeah. that it, it could work, but what if we just applied just the enzyme? Uh, what if we were able to apply the extract? And, mm-hmm. and um, it wouldn't be quite as clean just being, you know, magic of, it, you know, inoculating a golf green with white rot fungi, but uh, it could still be much more practical to, to carry out because it wouldn't be disrupted. So that. Okay. That to apply an enzyme to degrade thatch. And I remember my initial reaction was, okay, uh, so it could work, but even if it does, no one's going to be able to afford it. So mm. that, and that's where we, that's and when we first started uh, this project, we were buying uh, enzyme from uh, at probably $500 a gram. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, that's um, expensive. Uh, so it, it was expensive uh, to do, but the proof of concept studies were done, uh, were done using uh, commercially available uh, enzyme from Sigma. Okay. Uh, yeah, so that's where we started. But we did greenhouse and the first uh, bent grass uh, that we studied in the greenhouse, we we actually out drove up to East Lake Golf Course in Atlanta, um, and uh, they were changing their greens over from bent to uh, Bermuda grass. And so I brought back a truckload of bent. And we potted it up into six-inch pots and started uh, growing it in the greenhouse. And that's where our first studies uh, were started. Of course, it's okay. real easy to match on bent in the greenhouse. Yeah, uh, and so we didn't have any trouble there. Okay, so that was the Hort Science study, or the Hort was it Hort Science or Hort? Uh, one of the ASHS journals. I think we already covered yeah, that paper. Was, I actually. think it was the Hort Science study that you probably already talked about. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we, we didn't have any I, idea of what range we wanted to use, so we had to go. I mean, we just kind of shotgun approach of um, <laughs> wide range of rates yeah, yeah. all the way from I don't know, point two units two units, 20 units. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, so it was a big range because we had no idea of what it would take. Well, I'm glad um, you said that, Paul. I, I, if I could just interject, if I could just interject, I'm glad you said that because I, I've expressed to the audience before is that when we're doing rate studies, particularly on discovery type research, we, you know, my position and you, you know, it sounds like you're in the same, same boat with me here. If you're not, let me know is that we have to pick some rate. We have to pick some range of rates and we're hoping that we see a response. If the highest rate is too low, then we're not going to see a response and we might shelve it. I mean, meanwhile, the product might have worked, but we just used the wrong rate, right? And so it's, and that's what I, I think I even mentioned it on that paper when I was discussing it, is that you went from zero to 0.2 to two to 20 units per square centimeter. And you're using your best judgment, but you don't really know the rate. And it's from, we don't have a clue. Yeah, and so, but but it's yeah, it's from that <laughs> that science continues to grow. Yeah, yeah, we just yeah. Want to make sure that we captured if it could work, 
we wanted mm-hmm. to make sure that we had captured a practical range. So. Well, I feel better because I, th- I think I I think I re- represented your paper accurately then because that's what I told them. I was like, I don't think they really knew what you're doing. They're doing. They're just trying to figure out if it works at all. That's usually what happens in the lab or the greenhouse first before we go into the field. And um and so I'm I'm, I'm I feel feel at ease now that I didn't <laughs> I didn't say anything wrong about your other paper. It sounds like you're on I was on the same wavelength with you. So that's how yeah, it all started. You so this one came up. You know we had um. Um, we had some success in the greenhouse and we had mm-hmm. uh, a second study, which I thought was really crazy. It was Bob, Bob Carroll's idea mm-hmm. uh, to do this dead grass study. Oh. And uh, well, that's what we called it was the dead grass study where we went in and took a thatched up bent, killed mm-hmm. it with glyphosate mm-hmm. and then um, treated it. Oh, okay. And all right. And which was um, uh, that, that was not paper. Uh, that paper was, uh, it's probably referenced here, but I can't remember where it was published. It was published in a higher impact journal. Uh, oh, it was. Um, like, uh, it's who was probably the fir- in the... Who was the first the author? Do you remember who the first author was? It's probably Sudik. Um, there's Lake, There's one here in Soil Bio, Biological Biochemistry. That's probably it. That's it. Yeah, yeah right, that's here, it. right here. And um, um, just to see if we could. Yeah. <laughs> kind yeah. of thing. And because uh, that was much higher impact paper. Yeah. Um, but uh, with that study, the, the brilliance of Dr. Caro's idea was, you know, the problem with thatch is that we grow more uh, vegetative material than is decomposing. So mm-hmm. it accumulates. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just simple math. Yeah. And uh, so his idea was, well, if you stop it from growing, it's easier to see if the decomposition rates changing. Yeah. Because you take that that growth factor out of it, yeah. Uh, so uh, that was the beauty of that study, and th- that one worked very well. Okay. Uh, we had a little trouble getting it published because uh, a lot of the uh, reviewers were concerned about what we were doing with glyphosate, hmm. the impacts the glyphosate application had on the whole, you know, yeah, system. But anyway, <laughs> so this was uh, kind of the next uh, the next uh, paper we start. We also started a, a study on a bent grass green about the same time we started this one. Okay, uh, and we wanted to see if it would work on, uh, and we had some information that it was going to work on bent uh, mm. from the greenhouse, and then our 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 initial um, studies on the bent green were proving to be positive, and then we did this study. Yeah, uh, to try to broaden it to Bermuda grass and zoysia. Yeah, and that's the um, that's where I really start to gain confidence in these in stuff like this. Where this guy found this, okay, that's good. But then when you move it to a different grass, to in this case Bermuda and zoysia, particularly zoysia, and you start to see the same thing, okay, now my confidence starts to build a little bit more, right? And then do another study, I'm like, well, there's something going on here, you know. Um, and so I'm trying to impart upon my, to my audience that, you know, the level of your confidence in something should be directly proportional to the evidence And one paper is evidence. But when you start to see another paper and another paper and another paper, then your, your confidence should grow in this. And that's one reason why my confidence has grown in this, at least the concept of being able to do this and remove, reduce or 
or at least reduce the growth rate of, of that. And, and these two grasses, in this particular study we're talking about tonight, the Bermuda and Zoysia, you don't see the exact same response between Bermuda and Zoysia, but it's pretty close. I mean, what happens with Bermuda didn't always happen with Zoysia, but it, for the, you know, give or take, it did. Yeah. Do you want to? And the management's very different too. Yeah. Um, the Zoysia was uh, grown yeah, as a home well, lawn, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. So it was about inch and three quarter cut or so. Um, okay. Yeah. Low maintenance home lawn. And the, well, the let, green let, was not really a golf green. That was, we had a little bit of issue publishing this paper because mm. we had reviewers saying, well, that's not a green. And so yeah. we had to describe it properly, which was a very low maintenance green. It was more like the kind of cut was probably more like all we'd see on a tee box. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. For those uh, scientists and grad students out there listening to Dr. Raymer, remember he had challenges publishing this and he's been an editor. <laughs> Even editors have problems getting stuff through reviewers. Oh, yeah. it, that's that's oh, the yeah. scientific process. It's important. Um, so it's don't don't feel bad if you're if you submit a paper as a grad student and it gets rejected the first time or it has a lot of criticism. That's the purpose of refereeing the paper is to get the best paper you can. So keep your head up if you've submitted one or two papers and you haven't got it in yet. So uh, okay, so materials and methods. So let's just walk through it. Um, do you want to just walk us through the, the, the materials and methods or do you prefer to kind of follow the, what you, what's written here or how do you want to do this? Uh, uh, either way. I mean, uh, essentially the, uh, we used a typical green that had been established for several years mm -hmm. and uh, it did have a significant thatch layer initially. Uh, it okay. was maintained at, uh, I don't know, um, three-eighths of an inch or something. Yeah, um, and that's the Bermuda. That was Tiff Eagle you used. That was Tiff Eagle. Yeah. That's right. Okay. And um, and then it was on a, you know, USGA spec green, mm -hmm. uh, uh, sand-based green. Uh, so the soil types were very different. And then the, the zoysia was on native soil, yeah. uh, which for us is, a, you know, is a, um, so it's a Cecil. a lot of clay content, a Cecil. Okay. Uh, uh, a Cecil, probably Sandy Clay Loam, if I was guessing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what does it say? Cecil soil. It says a Cecil soil, fine, kalonitic, thermic, typic, can, I can't oh, pronounce yeah, these yeah. last so ones. That was a requirement at that time for yeah. the journal. Yeah. But, yeah. But, so but, it's a pretty typical Georgia clay. <laughs> yeah. And the, um, the putting green was maintained as a fairly low input putting green. And then yeah, the yeah, very low input. Yeah. yeah. So it was mowed like three times a week and um maintained oh, okay. pretty, uh, at about three eighths of an inch. Okay. And um fertility was fairly low as well. Okay. So I think I was only getting about three pounds in a year. Yeah. And then uh, the, so. the the zoysia as a home lawn, so it was it was mowed once a week at what is that a little less than two inch or yeah a little less than two inches inch and three quarters or yeah inch, seven eight something yeah. yeah clippings were returned zoysia grass was fertilized with um a quarter it looks like a quarter of a pound of nitrogen from a 24 410 each month once a month may june july yeah. and august for one pound a year so it was you know fairly low input as well for zoysia grass right. so right. we have a one we have the setting is in georgia we have Tiff Eagle on putting greens. That was a fairly low input. And we have Zoysia grass um, and it's Meyer Zoysia on a, maintained as a home lawn. And to be frank, the one pound a year on Zoysia as a home lawn, that's probably in the, you know, that's, that's reasonable. I mean, right. you know, that's, 
I can see how Revere might have a problem with the putting green at three eights and so forth, but it is what it is, you know, yeah. but the, the zoysia is, is, I would say that's very, yeah, very yeah. representative very of a home lawn. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it says during the first year lay case, oh, no, I'm saying, I'm calling this lay case. Is am I pronouncing well, that incorrectly? I don't know. It's pronounced a lot of different ways. Okay. You say tomato, I say tomato. All right. Uh, so I say, you say like case. I don't know. I'm from, uh, I'm from Oklahoma. You put the emphasis on the, you <laughs> you know, where you put the emphasis, right? Okay. I, I pronounce it lycase. Okay, lycase. It's a double C, but I'll uh, call it. I'll call it lycase. I hear lycase as well. Okay. So it was um, from white rot fungi, uh, and it was applied at 410 milliliters solution at zero and two units per. So this was the same unit, same um, volume or, or same concentration as you used in the greenhouse study on the bait. Yeah, that, two was units. The, that was the Sigma Aldridge. Uh, yeah material initially the first year and then it became unavailable okay uh, in the middle of this experiment yeah uh, we couldn't get it mm. and uh they had there i don't know who it was uh longer able to provide it yeah and um you know we we're probably buying more than anyone else so yeah um, so it came anyway, from a different organism they, uh, so so we went to uh jack's uh, chinese american uh, trained in China. He had a colleague that was working in this area, mm. uh, on, uh, and, uh, we went back to his colleague and he was able to produce some enzyme from a, uh, a little bit different white rot organism, a different species, okay. a different genus, actually, mm -hmm. uh, um, and one that he had been working with and had selected for high lacase production. Okay. Uh, that had been selected. Uh, they had screened a lot of different white run, white rot fungi. And uh, your audience might not know what white rot fungi are. It no. is hard to say. <laughs> it's a tongue twister. <laughs> uh, but they are, but they're the bracket fungi uh, that you see uh, growing on. Uh, trees, dead trees, logs in the forest, that kind of stuff. Mm. They're primary rotting organism, decomposing organism. Uh, and according to Jack, that's one of the few sources of uh, enzymes that will actually degrade lignin in, in, um, that exist in, in the world. That um, Lignin is a very protective coating, and without it, we wouldn't have, uh, we really wouldn't have functional plants. Okay. Because the, the microbes would eat them up. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so it's a, it's a protective thing for plants and, uh, but it does get in terms of decomposing. Them. Yeah. So, uh, we changed, so we changed sources. Um, and I think there's a note in there that talks about, uh, in, in that study that I was talking about on the vent green, where, mm. uh, we had actually tested a lot more, uh, treatments, in those trials okay and we uh so we had included both sources uh in those trials side by side just to see if uh how they would compare and in the yeah. initial study in that initial um comparison it looked like they were very comparable yeah and that's what uh, you state here at the last sentence of the materials yeah. of this section you said there were, we did a one year study, basically a little pilot study or a little short little study, and they didn't see any differences. So, and and it's important to, to note that is that the Sartain study, even though it was a little bit different, they had he had four rot fungi organisms. Uh, I can't remember four or five, 
and there were slight differences among them, you know, so it could be yeah. that coming from a different, uh, organism within the same genus, it, it could be that it didn't, it won't respond the same way, but you, you note here at the end, uh, that we did a study and we didn't notice any differences in the one year study between these two sources of lay case. So, um, and, and I think so that's good. a really good point is that, um, uh, that that's another area, uh, that's where research is needed as to what is the best, uh, lie case, what does it look like? Um, and, uh, that could be used for this, for this purpose. So, and we don't okay. know that yet. We, we, yeah. We're just going on which ones have the highest activity, uh, by okay. the way we look at the activity. Okay. Okay. So the measurements you guys took, um, so just real quickly, effectiveness of late lycase application and its impact on physical and chemical properties of thatch layer were determined after six months um, each year. So you applied it and six months later you took some measurements. And so biweekly treatments applications began in June 2010 and continued until December 2010. Biweekly treatment applications began in, okay, da, 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 that's just how you collect it. So the... So the, the parameters that you measure, that's what I want to get to. Parameters that you measure is right here. You measured thatch layer thickness. Yeah. You measured organic matter content in different layers. So the top one inch, the one inch to two inch um, depths, and then the top two inches, you measured organic matter. The saturated hydraulic conductivity, The and then you went, measured a variety of different uh, lignans, lig soluble lignin, acid-soluble lignin, and insoluble lignin, and total soluble lignin. And one thing, you know, just this is just a, anecdotal here i know saturated hydraulic conductivity is often used because it's generally seen as the the consequence of not managing thatch is that it generally reduces water penetration which clearly can be can occur but i'll tell you what happens happened in my my career paul is that i've seen more than just that be a problem i was in a uh, home law. I was driving up from my, um, I guess it was Miami. I was driving up to Gainesville once and I got a phone call right when I just crossed, um, I four going North through Orlando, got a phone call from a guy. He said, I'm trying to get a hold of some of the university of Florida and I can't get a hold of whoever. And I said, well, what can I do for you? And he said, I'm at the, I'm at the villages and I'm having some huge problems with my zoysia grass lawns. And I, I was on the phone with him. I was like, well, today's your lucky day. I'm literally 20 minutes away and I'm going to drive right by the villages here in about 20 minutes. I can stop by and take a look. So I stopped by and take a look and he had zoysia grass lawns that they had put in It's five years old. And what was happening with those, those lawns was that the thatch was so thick that it wasn't the water moving through the, through the thatch. That was the priority or the major problem. It was that the leaves, the newly emerging leaves simply couldn't penetrate the thatch layer going up. It wasn't able to get exposed to light. And the turf was thinning out and dying. And I said, just, let's just get a rake and start raking this stuff out. Because when I got my hands down in there and started tearing it apart, I saw some little green sprouts coming up. It just couldn't get through the thatch. That's how thick it was. And, um, I have some pictures where he ripped it out and it was literally a month later and it was just solid green because he got exposed to sunlight. So there's more than just water penetration. And oftentimes, oftentimes saturated hydraulic connectivity is the, go to this is the problem which it can be there's no doubt and i don't have a clue how to measure you know leaf emergence you know <laughs> metrics uh, i mean but but i've noticed that it's the leaf emergence through the thatch that often can be a problem as well i don't know if you have any other input um on along those thoughts or not yeah there's but. a lot of problems with thatch, um, and, and certainly you know i was just in my greenhouse this morning and uh 
had a lot of potted up bent grass that's not doing well. Mm. It's mostly due to thatch. Yeah. And where it hasn't been properly maintained as far as clipping. And so a lot of it, I, I should have brought a cup in, a, you know, a, a small pot in to show the audience what it, you know, what can happen with thatch. But mm. it had a thatch layer about this deep. Mm. And uh, and was dying just yeah. for the reason that you say it's it's dying is it um, and and when it starts dying what does my crew do they walk uh, because it's dying it looks sick and mm. so mm-hmm. um, it just just exacerbates the problem yeah. yeah yeah so there's a lot there's a lot of issues with thatch yeah there are uh, so you- uh, saturated hyd- hydraulic conductivity in the field is really hard to do <laughs> i don't like doing it um it's hard to get consistent results uh Sudeep did a really good job in the lab with this and uh with with uh, dr caro's coaching did you and, uh, yeah and, and did a very careful job and got some good data out of it and did you guys use a double ring out and what did you guys use out in the field oh you used no, a no, we marriott we, uh, we did it we, yeah we, I, don't we know used what, marriott, so. I don't know what that is what is that well marriott. it's just a, a, um essentially you put a water column above and so you get you've got a slight pressure yeah um and then it's it's sealed around so that the the soil core is taken in a in a brass cylinder okay uh, uh intact yeah and you take that you lift that core and you leave it in the cylinder yeah um and, and so each each core that you take has um it's not removed it's not touched once you pull that sample you put cheesecloth over the bottom yeah and okay. then there's a saturation in the steps you go through to do it but oh okay so, essentially you put a you put a, a slight positive pressure of uh solution over the top of it and then measure how how uh, water moves through it. Okay. How much water is able well, to move through. That's how I've always. I didn't know it was called a Marriott tube apparatus. In fact, I have one in my basement where I use a hammer and, and it drives down a core and I pull out the core and it's you know. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, you're the soil scientist, right? Well, yeah, but I didn't know it was called a Marriott tube apparatus. I always <laughs> thought they called them like Tempe cells or or Tempe tubes or something. I, don't, I always thought it was something else, but it sounds yeah. like it was the exact same thing. That this is a very yeah. Common method is is the point yeah. here. So uh, saturated hydraulic conductivity is very common. What did I miss here? Organic ladder. Oh, so you did organic layer by the weight loss on ignition. You did thatch layer thickness. Um, looks like you just used a, a ruler or a caliper or something. So very common yeah, measurements. Measured by the ruler. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I published that paper years ago on thatch. What was it? Thatch correlation of thatch thickness or something. I can't remember. And it, it was the ruler that tended to be the most consistent and precise uh, as opposed to compression or. Well, you know, measure, measuring thatch layer is, uh, is difficult to yeah. do consistently. Um, it's, you know, it's, uh, it takes an eye for it. Uh, <laughs> it takes a very special person to sit there and do those measurements over and over uh, and over again. Well, and you got to know, um, you know, it, and this paper, in this paper, it, it makes it sound like it's really clear and obvious, but all the time, it's not all the time. No, it's and not. So it's, 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 uh, slightly taking that soil profile and, and, and just needing it to, to, till you see that separation between the mat layer and the, and the thatch layer. I tell you, I, I, I've had many examples of this in my life, but one, one example of how rapidly, um, I can reach my, 
level of ignorance and just like, man, I, uh, every, you know, every now and then, like you kind of think, you know, something like, oh, I kind of think I know this. And then you see an expert really do it. And you're like, oh my gosh, I don't know anything. And I was out one time on a golf course with Dr. George Snyder and he was pulling cores and he was talking about how he measured thatch. And I'm like, okay, let me show, I'm going to learn something. I'm going to watch him. You know, I, I admire him greatly. And the way he did it was like a surgeon. I mean, he knew he, you could tell the man had done it thousands and thousands. He put his 10,000 hours in and I just realized, yeah, I, I don't know anything. <laughs> I, I really <laughs> don't know what I'm doing when I see someone who really knows what they're doing. Just do it with such ease. It's, it's really impressive and, and, and fun to experience, I guess. So, but it is, there is a science to it and an art. And when it comes to there finding where that line is to the thatch, so. Okay, so you did some lignin. I don't know this lignin. I've never measured lignin, but you said you had to you express how you uh, determine the lignin. So we have three or four different metrics that you measured. You have two grasses over two years in Georgia, one on the putting green, one on native soil. Is that kind of the basic setup of the study? Right. Okay. Well, let's get into the fun part. Let's get into the results. So, um, I've highlighted several things in here, Paul. I I, I don't want to miss the, the figure, sometimes I'll, I won't even go over into any text and I'll just discuss everything through the figures or tables. And sometimes I'll just read the text. Um, this might be one where we can just go over the figures cause you have some pretty good figures and tables in here. How do you feel about that? Yeah, that's great. The, let me see if I can zoom in here and keep it on the screen. And then remember yeah. there are going to be some people listening that aren't watching. And so, um, okay. I try to do my best to, to verbalize what we're, what we're talking about here. And on this figure, figure one is the organic matter content after biweekly applications of lycase on Bermuda and zoysia grass with two levels of, of lycase, the zero and the 2.1 units per square centimeter. And we can see the differences in the, the treatment. So we have year one and year two with Bermuda grass on the X axis, year one and year two with zoysia grass on the X axis and on the Y axis, we have, um, organic matter. So you want to walk us through this figure here, Paul? Okay. Um, so we've indicated with a horizontal line across um, each of the turf grass species where we were at the before we started the experiment, what our data indicated. And, and so what we see in year one on Bermuda grass is we see an uh, increase in organic matter uh, in the control plots. Uh, we don't see, uh, but we see a slight decrease in the lycase-treated plots. So you're talking about from this bar of, of the control to this bar, there was a slight increase. No. no I'm sorry. Uh, no, from the baseline. Oh, from sorry. the baseline. Oh, from the baseline from up. From the baseline to there. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. So we see a slight increase mm -hmm. uh, in year one of organic matter uh, okay. in the control plots. Okay. And then a slight, just a very, very slight decrease, or at least we'll yeah, say it's static. Yeah. Uh, uh, for those that were treated with lycase. So this this is what would have happened had lycase not been applied, basically. That that's right. Yeah. So with lycase, there might not necessarily be a reduction from the baseline, but there's a reduction to compared to what would have happened had you not applied anything. That's correct. So in in year one, and then in year two. It looks like you saw the same, same thing. Basically, thing. yeah, there looked like there same might have been thing. a slight increase of the control from when I don't, you're not comparing years here, yes. but yes, but that's right. It looked like it continued to go up, which is what you'd expect. Right. And you can still measure it from the baseline. 
mm. uh, you, that baseline could have been extended over to year two. Yeah, yeah, exactly right here. Right. And you saw a reduction using lycase right. in year two with Bermuda grass. Now, this is what I was talking about in the in the preamble a little bit. You don't always see the exact same thing with zoysia, but you, give or take, you kind of do. And with zoysia grass, we, we want to go over that too here in year one. We saw a difference, right? Yeah, and in year one, we, we did see a slight increase mm-hmm. um, in thatch layer thickness, or in, sorry, in organic matter content for okay. the control, mm-hmm. uh, but very slight. And But we did see, uh, did see a significant reduction uh, in the treated plots. In the treated plots, yes, right here. And then in year two, they sort of wash out. They don't. We don't see any differences right. in year two. We see numerically the same trend, but mm-hmm. not no statistical difference. Yeah, which is, which is kind of comforting. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, there's when you do field research like this, there's always a lot of variability, and that variability really interferes with our ability to detect statistical differences. Yeah, so, yeah, I wish. Uh, but you know, numerically, uh, it's a little a little bit higher, and that's. Uh, even though they're not, we say they're not different, but uh, it follows the same trend. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So that's the that's the organic matter. Let's look at the thatch layer thickness, which is what a lot of people also like to see as well. What happened with that? You want to walk us through here? All right. It's a same sort of thing where we've got a baseline, um, and we see very little difference in the baseline for thatch layer thickness. Maybe a, just a slight increase mm-hmm. but we do see a significant statistically significant decrease mm-hmm. uh, in the treated plots uh, for Bermuda grass in year one and in year two um, year two it seems to the magnitude of that decrease seems to be a little bit numerically a little bit bigger mm-hmm. uh, and again statistically different um, and then in zoysia grass we see the exact same pattern yeah in this case the thickness was the the, the response was the same regardless of the species of grass basically right yeah that's really good to see and and i'll be frank with you paul when that when that hort science paper came out in the in the greenhouse i'm like okay all right yeah i've seen stuff like this happen once or twice you see something like this happen but i'm a skeptic as well and i'm sure as a scientist to some degree we're all healthily skeptical when i see a paper okay check it i'll put it in the in the model of the turf grass science and it's in there but I'm not convinced. I'll be, I'll be frank with you. The Hort Science paper didn't convince me. Just, I'll just be frank. But then when you see this, I'm like, well, dang. <laughs> I mean, something's going on here that is we, we need to pursue. And I have an important question for you at the end and before we go today that I want to make sure I, I ask you. I have it written okay. down here so I don't forget. Um, but there's clearly something going on. It's, this is not just a statistical reduction. This is also a biologically significant reduction. I mean, right. you're, you're going from, you know, 16, 17 millimeters down to 13, 14 in one year. I mean, you're reducing it. What was what that? 15, 20 percent, whatever that number is right. in a year. So it's it's, you know, when I when I start seeing papers like this and then I'm like, man, they <laughs> I, I, I got to start looking at this now, you know, and so so kudos to you guys. Well, well done with this paper. And th- this is what continues to build my confidence into the audience that's listening it's not just this paper it's the prior paper it's this paper it's the next paper we're going to talk about tomorrow morning it, it you know that's how our confidence builds um by by seeing 
repeated results that are similar among different species among you know with with you know different times and we see the same thing we got to start looking at it in a serious light you know so well done anything else on those on those figures you want to go over yeah i think that's the major take home is is the major take home is it works <laughs> it works well done very well said succinct i like it well i'm just going to skip over all this because that's all all this highlight is is what that what that we just said so the next there's a couple there's a table and a figure down here this next figure is the saturated hydraulic conductivity with the same setup as what we just talked about we have the x-axis with the years and the bermuda grass and soja and then on the y-axis we have so, so for those who might not be familiar with the term saturated hydraulic conductivity, it's measuring the, the rate at which water moves through the soil column. You want to talk to us about this, this figure, Paul? Okay, so um, here um, the x-axis is, is, are the different species in the years of the study. The y-axis is uh, how much water is moving through. Mm -hmm. And... Um, in this case, more water moving through is a good thing. Correct. Uh, so, so in in the control plots, we had lower saturated hydraulic conductivity in both years of the study. Mm -hmm. Very similar trend. Uh, the values were different, but the but the pattern was very similar. Yes. Uh, and again, both statistically different. Uh, in year one of the zoysia, they were. The pattern was the same. They were not statistically different. In uh, in year two, they were statistically different. Again, the pattern the same. The magnitude of how much water was moving through were very different because remember, for Bermuda grass, this was on a sand profile. Yep. Uh, for zoysia grass, it was on a native soil profile with a high clay content, so water wasn't moving through as much. Yeah. So. Um... So saturated hydraulic conductivity increased uh, yes. with lichase application. Yeah, so that's that's you know you can infer from that I suppose I don't know how much we're comfortable inferring too far outside this, but you can infer from that that because the thatch is being degraded a little bit uh, more with the lichase, it's being degraded in some what fifteen twenty percent reduction. That's reducing the impeding movement the water movement it's, it's it's no longer impeding the water movement through the soil column and you see the water movement go up the speed centimeters yeah. per hour so we're going you know, from go ahead no i'm just saying you're going from 110 centimeters per hour i just want to point out because i've talked about it to my channel before you can have statistical significance and biological significance or any combination you can have statistical significance and no biological significance or the opposite in this case you have both it's 110 centimeters per hour which is quite high, okay, it already. But you're going, you're increasing that to 140, you know, uh, and, and a put, on, a, on a putting green. And you're going from whatever this number is, probably around 10 to greater than 20. So you're more than doubling the rate at which water is moving. And this is not statistically significant, but I would argue that that's probably biologically significant. So here's an example of something that's not statistically significant. So as scientists, we can't say there's a difference. We're, we're not, I, I should say as scientists, we're not comfortable saying there's a difference because the chances of us being wrong are, are too great. But, right. but biologically, you're almost tripling the rate at which water's moving through here, Paul. So, right. I mean, 
I would say in a, from in a biological system, that's probably significant. That's something I'd want to least be aware of, even if the sats say it's not. In other words, if we rep this out two or three more times, we might be able to pull that out is what I'm saying. And, and here we see a, a less magnitude reduction, but a statistical significance. So the error was, was we were better able to control the error in this particular year than the first year. And we saw a difference here. So anyway, the point is, is that water's moving through quicker and it's very likely a result of the reduction in thatch. That's the take home message well, from that. You know, Derek, this is uh, why I almost tried to interrupt you while ago, so I apologize for that. But no. um, we've also learned something else, uh, kind of a, a, a study that spun out of this, kind of like a, a spinoff sitcom, hmm. uh, was looking at, uh, and you'll cover, maybe you'll cover part of this in the paper tomorrow, mm -hmm. is uh, we, we wonder like the ability to break down organic matter difficult yeah. to break down organic matter could it be effective at uh, reducing soil water repellency as well and so we did we did several years study looking at um, the potential for live case applications to treat localized dry spot oh, okay uh, and it's it's effective it's not as effective as a wetting agent but it is effective okay uh, and what we learned was in combination with a wetting agent, it's more effective than a wetting agent. Did you guys publish that yet? Uh, some of it's published. Some, hmm. of, that's, it's, some of it's in that paper. Okay. Uh, that, this is, um, yeah, that's probably when our team started to fall apart. Sadiq <laughs> left and he was a machine. Uh, and um, and uh, Bob Carroll retired. Yeah. And then I kind of got left holding the bag on this study for a while. So that's probably well, I'll look it up. Not all, all that's published. So, okay. but there's some of it published in that paper you're going to cover tomorrow. Okay. Well, that's interesting. I didn't know. I mean, it makes sense. I know there's some products in the market for um, soil water repellency that are the idea behind them is that they would remove the organic coatings on the sands or the soil and help reduce that, you know, hydrophobicity. Yeah, that was the concept here was yeah. rather than just, um, um, you know, treat the symptoms, actually try to yeah. remove the problem. Yeah. I'll have to look that up when I get on wedding agents. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll look that up and see, see what, what you guys found. This, uh, one of the f last, uh, figures here, I don't know if this is the last one or not, but we're talking about lignin now. So we've talked about the thatch, uh, organic matter, the thickness, the hydraulic connectivity. And now we're talking about the total lignin and it's the same setup. Bermuda grass and zoysia year one, year two, and the total lignin is in grams per kilogram, which were, yeah, grams per kilogram total lignin. You want to walk us through this? It's basically the same thing, right? Yeah, it it is. It's the same same pattern. Um, in all cases, we saw statistical differences. We saw um, uh, this is let me see. This is total lignin content on this, total. this figure, right? Yes. So total lignin content was reduced in uh, all the lichase treatments. Yeah. Year one, year two on Bermuda. Year one, year two on Zoysia. Yeah. Uh, so we were, I was really encouraged because this is the first, this is the first study where, you know, where we um, really measured um, uh, lignin content from the field. So yeah. uh, it, it, it was pretty important. Yeah. There. Well, I can't wait till the end. I'm just going to ask it now. I, I'm, maybe I'm been living under a rock somewhere. I don't, and I'm out of the system. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not in the industry much anymore, but w why hasn't this caught on? There's a, the, you remember what I talked about introducing new crops? <laughs> okay. New technologies? Yeah. Um, 
there's some issues and, and that cost issue that I referred to earlier is still still uh, uh, the, the big elephant in the room. Okay. Uh, so um, the, we've worked with uh, uh, Aquatrol's uh, folks early on in this work. They were very interested uh, in, this, uh, in this work and its potential. Okay. Um, and then, you know, things happened with that company. Uh, it was sold and um, uh, there was a spinoff company. We're still working with some of the principals that we worked with 10 years ago on this. Hmm. And it's in field testing now. Okay. The, the, big, the big problem we've had is trying to figure out how to produce this enzyme at a, a, commercial, at a commercial scale at a cheap enough price that hmm. it can be practical to be used in golf management. Okay. So uh, it's the cost. And it, yeah, it's it's a cost factor. Um, so after we these studies, um, the rates we're using are about twenty four units a year. What what is um, that? Help me understand that. From my, I, I don't understand twenty four units. I'm, I'm thinking well, pounds no per acre. Does. It's just it's just how we've been able to calibrate and 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 standardize our experiments. So okay. what we're using to during this experiment was a crude extract. Okay. Uh, from fungal fermentation. All right. So this is just a, a, a raw extract from um, you put in a food source, you put in the fungi, you put it in a, a, a fermentation vessel with mixing and the right temperatures uh, for a while. And it grows and it produces lycase as well as an, a number of other enzymes too. Some, mm. of the, some of which may be significant in terms of their contribution. All we we're doing is 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 filtering and uh, and standardizing the lycase level within it. Okay. Uh, usually by concentrating the to to a standard, and then um, so we switched to this liquid formulation. Uh, before the stuff we were buying from was a crystalline powder uh, that was very high purity. Hmm. Uh, we decided, hey, we're putting this on soil. <laughs> yeah. We don't need high purity. You know, we don't need to be pharmaceutical grade. We just need a crude with high activity. Sure. Uh, we need activity, not purity. And um, and so uh, we've been working, trying, you know, no one in the U.S. will, it, it seems we've really struggled to try to find anyone that will do fun, fungal fermentation in the U.S. Hmm. Uh, very few companies that are interested in doing uh, that type of work. Uh, so we've gone to China. Uh, we've had, um, you know, like one or two ton batches. We've, we're, we've got one under contract now, a oh, batch okay. for some commercial testing. Okay. Uh, it's got other applications other than this application um, to persistent chemicals in the soil. Okay. Uh, PFAS is, is why Jack started working on this. So. Okay. Uh, so there's a lot of other applications as well, but the problem has been, how do we produce it? And, and the, the real trouble is we won't, we can't know for sure what the lowest price can be until we get to a commercial scale yeah. production. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and so once the, once, once we get the volume, we can produce it at a very reasonable cost. Yeah. So we push the the uh, the levels down in our research is like how low can you go and still be effective? My opinion, maybe we push them too low. 
Oh, okay. and, and that this, these higher levels are very convincing. If we could go at those levels, I think we would have a product, but question is, could anybody afford to use it? Can, can we afford it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes sense. I guess that's the, that's always the catch, you know, some people have got to be able to pay for it. So the, that pretty much sums it up. The, you know, I, we can go through here. The, it basically just sums up what we just talked about. Um, and you even said at the end, until this data is required, the economics and practicality of commercial lie case application as a non-disruptive means of thatch management remains uncertain. Basically, until you can figure out how to mass produce it at a at a level people will pay for and can afford. Uh, yeah, you know. I, and our initial goal, um, Travis, was to was to try to get it to approximately a cost of a fungicide application. That was well, our that, goal. That would be ideal. I, I'm yeah. not, I, if we could do that, we think we can we can make it work but yeah well that'd be kind of hard to argue against that i mean if someone's putting out a fungicide application they can clearly afford that and if thatch is continuing to grow if you say well it's the cost of fungicide application you can see these reductions i mean that's that's a pretty good selling point i think especially well, you know one point we really haven't made about uh, maybe you have in earlier episodes but mm. one point we haven't really talked about is the disruption of our current uh, practices and the cost yeah. that that occurs is not just the expenses, you know, involved with buying the sand, the tines, the corification, yep. uh, you know, all that, but just the disruption in play and loss of sales is really significant, especially for uh, medium and high end courses. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's very significant, and you know, I, I've had. Um, uh, superintendents at high end courses tell me if you tell me this will work and I can cut out one or two uh, soil verifications a year. Uh, and, uh, and that's all we, that's all I would recommend is that you reduce the number because soil verification does some other things sure. other than that. Oh stage. yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, so, um, but if you could cut that out a couple of times, the, the economics works out, works yeah. out pretty yeah. well. Well, I mean, I mean, I, I, Paul, I was in sales for six, seven years, and I've heard a lot of sales pitches, but this is... That's not a hard one? That's not a hard one to, for me to believe, honestly. Yeah. Now, if you just stopped with the Hort Science paper, to be frank, I'd have been like, eh, I'm still on the fence. But when you put out the number of papers you all have been putting out and the quality journals you've been putting them in, you know, and the, the consistent results, like, well, to me, it's the product. It's, it, it's not much of a question whether or not it functions. It works. It works. We just got to figure out how to make it financially feasible for these folks. Yeah, you and know. to get it commercialized. That's and and we're still working on it. So. Yeah. Well, um, I have a couple of questions I ask all my guests before I say goodbye. But um, before that, um, is there anything at all that's on the market today that's in a bottle that can control thatch? Well, there, uh, I saw a product at the golf industry show uh, last year, uh, which is working on the same model. Okay. In, in fact, I um, um, gave them a call and tried to initiate a conversation to see if we could work together. These were out of Colorado. Mm. And, and so there is one product, and, and I think there's some research ongoing in Florida, actually. Oh, really? Uh, with it. That's what I that's what I understood in the conversation with the guy. But he wasn't interested in working with us. Okay. And I think he's actually using 
I'm not sure about this, but I think he's actually using a different uh, fungi that's mm-hmm. uh, associated with, I, I better not say this because I'm not sure about the facts <laughs> on this, but okay, it's coming enough. out of Penn State and um, the, the original work was done out of Penn State. You may know what I'm talking about. Uh, I don't know anything. <laughs> okay. So anyway, it's associated with thatch collapse syndrome. Okay. Have you ever heard of thatch collapse? Or, uh-huh. um, yeah. yeah. And, and so I think that's the organism they're working with. Okay. Uh, but they're, they have the same issue cost. Well, I mean, the reason I say that, Paul, is because a lot of my audience, I'd say my audience is probably 90% lawn care people. And there's so many products on the market, Paul. It's you, I, I was blown away. I mean, most of my career I've spent in golf or in sod production or sport turf, right? I've spent very little in, in lawn care, you know, and the, the, what I have is all in Florida where we're dealing with St. Augustine grass that doesn't have thatch really. So it's not much, not much going on there, but there's so many products in lawn care. I had no clue the, how much stuff is out there. And I'm thinking, how, where do all these products come from that? I don't, I don't know of any product in the bottle other than the light case. And then this other product that you just mentioned, uh, that would really do anything to thatch. Um, so I, I just wondered from someone who's done so much work on it, if you're aware of anything and cause I see so many products and I feel, I don't know, just depressed when I see so many products and I go on in that I don't think they're doing anything you know, at all you know, to, the, to the thatch. Um, most of those bugs in a jug probably already yeah. exist on the golf cream. And, um, <laughs> they probably do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, they, they, uh, so the problem is those populations, but there's plenty of stuff to break down the simple sugars, the cellulose. And yeah. The hemicellulose. yeah. There's plenty of bugs there to do that. We really believe mm-hmm. that the right limiting step is lignin and lignin. Well, if you can put holes in the lignin, you can, there's plenty yeah. of microbes there without adding, uh, additional ones. To break it down. Oh, well, then I'm on the right path then because uh, yeah, I'm not a thatch person, as you all know, but it seems like from my knowledge of the literature that it is lignin that's the problem. I read, read a brief little periodical, like four paragraph periodical the other day of uh, some biochemists. I can't remember where they were. And they were talking about lignin uh, being the rate limiting factor in the global carbon cycle. Like it, it's so resistant to degradation that if it weren't for white rot fungi, it would stay in lignin. The carbon would stay there for a, a very, very long time. Um, and, and so it, you know, and I've, I've said before, and I'm glad you, you said what you said. So it kind of reinforces, I hope that I'm saying the right things is that I'm not overly concerned about cellulose and hemicellulose and the clippings. I'm not overly concerned about the clippings. Those will tend to degrade on their own. It's the, it's the stems you know, it's the lignin that's stuck there. That it is. We have to figure out a way to break that up. And um, and it seems to me like this product is doing that. I just I hope we can figure out a way to make it financially feasible for people and get it on the market because it would be great. I mean, if we can find it's a holy grail. If we can find a way to control thatch without tearing everything up, without disrupting play, without. In my case, I have a robotic mower. I can't do any airification or verticutting it because I have a wire in my ground and people have um, dog, dog fence, invisible dog fences. You can't go in there and start tearing stuff up. And so they have no option to remove thatch in those cases. Like I don't have any option. I don't have much thatch, but I mean, 
I don't have any option. So to be able to do this without disrupt, disrupting the surface would, would be a very good thing. We've been talking about it since the Letterboer and Scogley paper in 67, you know, so can we, this would be a great thing if we could do that. So it's 50 years and we're still talking about it, but I, I think we're onto something here. We just got to figure out a way to make it possible. Yeah. We, uh, we, you know, uh, well, uh, I'll, uh, you've got my contact information if you would like to invest. <laughs> <laughs> you got to talk to my wife about we can, that. We can build a, we can build a fermentation and start making lycase and see how cheap we can do it. Yeah, okay. So it's it's really uh, it's really not that hard to make. Um, the strain's a little important um, mm -hmm. that you're working with the feedstock, but uh, um, yeah, the the question is, you know, we, when we try to um, we try to contract produce this, uh, and we've done that for the last ten years, trying to look for contract um, production. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're, you're competing with food and pharmaceutical grade products and yeah. uh, you, you just, you know, you can't pay for all that stainless steel. Yeah. So, um, Let's, let me just go. Probably do. So <laughs> yeah. A couple of questions. And one of the questions in the, in the chat was what was the, how to cut the Bermuda grass? I think it was three eighths inch. Um, I think, uh, yeah, it was, it was uh, 0.42 centimeters, point, whatever that works out to. Okay. So lawn sauce asked that question. Another question from lush lawns. I believe lush is in Massachusetts. He asked what price per acre were you looking at with the lie case when you're, what, what price was too high, even as low as you could get it about what price was it? Do you remember Paul? Um, uh, I think we were looking at a sales price around $8 a liter. Uh, and that's probably higher than that now. Mm. And we were hoping to be able to produce it for about $2 a liter. Then okay. we have to formulate it and then distribute it, ship it and make money. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, so it's, you know, it's still $2 a liter is pretty expensive. Yeah. Um, okay. And, and so the rate, so we were looking at, I think our threshold was. Uh oh. We lost Dr. Dr. Raymer. Like 1500. Oh, we lost you there. We lost you there briefly, Paul. You're back now. Yeah. So. Okay. Yeah. I froze up. So we're, uh, so I think we're looking at about $1,500 in application. Well, how, how much is an, how many acres is an application? One acre? Uh, heck, we were considering a hectare, uh, oh. a hectare so uh, a golf course. So that'd be about eighteen. A, a golf course has about a hectare worth of greens. Okay, two acres. Okay, so it's up there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Tanner Moore, I'm sorry, in chat, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to pronounce any of those scientific names. He has a question, I don't know if you can read that, Paul, but it says, any lycase coming from these sources, Bacillus lichenformis, Cellulomonas. Oh, those are from, those are the white rot fungi, I think, from Sartain's paper, if I remember correctly. Uh, uh, that's... Bacillus is a bacteria. Okay. Pseudomonas is a bacteria. Okay. Not that well, I'm aware. No. Is. Okay. I, I'm not that familiar with them, so not that I'm aware. Okay. Yeah, sorry. I, yeah. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> okay. All right. That's that's all we have for the chat questions tonight. The two questions I keep for my guests are, what type of grass do you have in your lawn? Actually, I have a centipede lawn right now. Really? Uh, at one time, yeah. One time in the past, I had a seed front yard and a tall fescue backyard. Okay. My backyard was shady. And so I claimed that I could look out 
and see a beautiful lawn year round. I just had to choose the window. (laughs) (laughs) So I I mean, I don't, I don't ever ask follow-up questions. I just let the guest ask, answer the question. I move on. But when you have, when you have a guest say they have a centipede lawn, I have to follow up with that. How how do you like your centipede? Like, cause it, it has a, you know, some people love it, but some people have a difficulty with when they're managing it or they're applying stuff to it. How do you like it? I love it because it's, um, I, I call it a poor man's grass. Mm-hmm. The, the less you do to it, the better it performs. And, um, and, <laughs> uh, and, and so I, I absolutely love it. It's very well adapted to these red clay soils here. It kind of likes a lower pH. Okay. Um, and our soils tend to have higher iron contents and my uh, well that I water the yard with has extremely content okay so that's one of the biggest problems in, in some areas especially where the pH is that you get iron chlorosis um, with the um, centipede uh, but so okay. I don't have that problem I've got a you know the colors not off you know some people actually apply iron uh, uh, foliarly to to try to help green it up a little bit but i don't have yeah. that problem okay so i love it i mow it once a week well i have another friend that lives in um i guess it's alabama i can't remember alabama or georgia he has a centipede lawn he loves it too um so you know there's a couple centipede people in our community they they you know they, it's not <laughs> a bad grass it's just you know you gotta know how to manage it just like anything else last question paul is if i were to ask your peers the following question what do you think they would say Dr. Paul Raymer is a specialist in this area. What do you think they'd say? I have no idea. Uh, I, because I've always considered myself very much a generalist. Um, okay. I get bored in on projects like this one. I mean, years on this project. And I'll tell you, that's, that's when research really gets to be fun. It's when you can stack together. Because with every experiment you... Um, you wind up with more questions than you answered. Uh, we hope so. And, and, and then the next logical step, it, it becomes uh, uh, just more interesting. The more you do, the more you find out about it. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it's just a lot of fun. So I don't know. I'm, I'm still a generalist at heart, though. I'm an agronomist, plant breeder, but I, I like things that can lead to commercial products or to actually impact things. I like applied research, not just doing research to find an answer to a question. I, I want it to be able to be useful. You have to use it. Yes. Dr. Raymer, I can't express my gratitude to you enough for coming on tonight. Thank you very much. I learned a lot. I hope my audience did. You're welcome anytime. Anytime you, you can just come in anytime you have an open invitation. Anytime you have the time, I, I welcome welcome your All right, I've got a input. couple of other projects we could talk about. <laughs> Thank you very much. Hold on. Don't go anywhere, Paul. For the rest of my audience, I'll be back on tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. with Dr. Raymer's grad student, right? Was he your Ph.D. student or master's student? He was a Ph.D. student. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jack and I co-advised him. Okay. Jack Wong, the chemist. Okay. Uh, co-advised him and Carol was very much a part of, you know, our Perfect. daily routine. So we, we were a, uh, kind of a four scientist team there. Okay. So Dr. C D will be on with me tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. Our normal time for Thursday morning for everybody else. Thank you for coming. Dr. Raymer. Thank you all for attending and participating in the chat. I uh, see a lot of people participating in the chat. That, uh, definitely makes me happy that you guys are, are 
appearing to, to get a lot of information from, from the show tonight. I'll see everybody else tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. Thank you very much. Bye. All right. Bye-bye.